Hey, Nova families, need childcare? Let La Petite Academy help. With 13 locations nearby, we've got you covered. Your child will love our full-day summer camp. It's packed with hands-on STEM projects, exciting activities, lots of outdoor playtime, plus healthy meals and snacks, too. School-age students even get to take field trips. It's big fun for them and peace of mind for you. See it all with live streaming video in our Sproutabout app. Sign up at LaPetite.com. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. In today's economy, more people than ever are looking to buy and sell businesses. But how do you do it? Welcome to The Deal Board, presented by Transworld Business Advisors. Straight talk about real deals and real people. Listen to stories, interviews, and expert advice to help your business sale, merger, or acquisition process. Now, here are your business exit experts, Andy and Jessica. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we have an episode focused on minority investment and business acquisitions. And I'm really excited because we have a special host with us today from our Transworld Network. So welcome to Robert Johnson, who is the principal of Transworld Business Advisors in Chicago downtown. Robert, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jessica. I truly appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Great. Well, Robert, why don't you talk to us a little bit about your work with Transworld? And I know you have a ton of great experience previous to that, but just introduce the listeners to yourself a little bit more. Sure. Um, as you indicated, I'm the uh, principal uh, and president of uh, Transworld uh, Business Advisors uh, for Chicago downtown. So I have basically the uh, entire uh, Chicago uh, loop and the South loop. So it's about 19,000 businesses in that, in that territory. But, but prior to that, uh, I spent, um, well, I'm a lawyer by trade. I've been a lawyer for about 25 years. Um, uh, the bulk of that uh, was spent at McDonald's Corporation. Uh, so all of my legal career has been um, practiced here in Chicago. But uh, as I said, a, a good chunk of it was as corporate counsel for McDonald's Corporation. Um, where I did a variety of things for the company. I'd like to say um, I was a, a fixer, but that that uh, <laughs> that title is not that popular these days. <laughs> but uh, that's what I did for McDonald's. I was the guy that they uh, used whenever there was issues in the in the restaurants to try to make those things go away. Uh, anything from you know hot coffee being poured on somebody to something more serious like a, a murder or some kind of uh, accidental death. So I did that for a number of years for them and then uh, ended up, uh, since my job was to fix problems, uh, our employees started getting injured in some strange and interesting ways. So um, some of those uh, issues got brought to my attention, which were ostensibly workers' comp cases. Um, and since it was my job to kind of get rid of stuff, I got rid of those. And if you spend any time in corporate America, you know, once you touch something, it becomes like flypaper, it sticks to you. So they kept sending those uh, issues to me to try to resolve. And um, I was getting a little frustrated because I was a bit busy with, at that time, I think we were serving about 19 million customers a day. Uh, so I was fond of saying if there's a one in a million chance of it happening in any given day, it can happen 19 times in my day. So, um I looked into it to see who should be handling these these cases, um, and it turns out there was no one really in the legal department that was responsible for managing it. And we were spending about at that time about fifty five million dollars a year on these cases. 
Um, so I went back to senior management and say, hey, uh, you guys need to put together a team just like mine that manages when our customers get injured, uh, when our employees get injured. The only difference really is the side of the counter that they stand on. If they stand on this side of the counter, they're an employee. If they stand on the other side of the counter, they're a customer. And oh, by the way, we're spending, you know, $55 million a year, and this is actually our money. Whereas opposed when customers get injured, you typically have some kind of insurance that indemnifies you for that. So they say, great idea, you do it. So that was the first time I realized that no good deed goes unpunished. So I ended up creating that team from scratch. And um, long story short, we saved the company about $70 million over the course of six years. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in economics, so I, I actually... Um, refer to myself as a lawpreneur. I'm about equally as much of an entrepreneur as I am a lawyer. So um, at that point, I guess they realized this lawyer knows a little bit about business and they moved me over to the business side. And I became what was then called the franchise relations officer. Uh, actually, I think I had three jobs. I was a franchise relations officer. Uh, and the other role was that of what was called the ombudsman, the person that was responsible for uh, mediating disputes between the uh, franchisees and the company. And then I was also the company liaison to a lot of the minority affinity groups. Principally, I was the company liaison to all the black McDonald's owner operators in the system. And then the Asian, the Hispanic, and the women owner operators in the central division. Uh, McDonald's uh, split the company up into, uh, the country rather, up into three divisions. And the central division was roughly about... At that time, maybe about $14 billion, I think, in revenue. And I think we had about 2,200, 2,300 uh, franchise uh, stores. Um, and I can't remember how many organizations that was, but it was quite a lot. So we were part of the senior leadership team that was responsible for driving that revenue uh, for the company. Um, and it was really then when I went over to the business side that I kind of really fell in love with the franchise model. I thought I understood it uh, from a legal standpoint, um, because that's primarily what I had been focused on. But when I went over to the business side, um, I really recognized how powerful a model franchising is. I, I would argue it's probably one of the most powerful um, business models that exists and, and really saw that McDonald's has made more minority and women millionaires than any other company in the world. I think I was roughly responsible for about a thousand or so myself, uh, which is phenomenal for any any company uh, to have created. Uh, so um, I left McDonald's about five years ago and started my own consulting company doing a lot of the same stuff that uh, I was doing for McDonald's. Um, still work with some of the McDonald's owner operators um, and a couple of other brands. Uh, and then I bumped into, I uh, was to say fortunate enough to be uh, presented with an opportunity to own a, a trans world franchise. Um, since, you know, I'm always extolling the virtues of franchising, I had to start practicing what I preached uh, and bought a franchise myself. So I bought the franchise uh, territory about um, a little over a year and a half, two years ago, something like that. Um, and really what we do now is, is sort of a hybrid model. Um, a lot of the trans world offices, I should say the majority of them, I think I've focused if not exclusively, uh, probably ninety um, percent um, from my sort of thumbs, my sort of unofficial survey uh, on business brokerage, uh, which is what Transworld started off as. Uh, so, 
But my expertise in our office is just as equally balanced, I think, uh, on focusing on franchise development, uh, franchise consulting. And my approach, um, or I should say our approach really is to try to work to develop and transform communities, uh, looking at how we can use franchising uh, to do that. And we've been really in the last couple of years developing relationships with uh, not just the UFG brands, but also the United Franchise Group brands, but also uh, other brands that are interested in uh, having a presence in underserved communities and being a part of turning turning around some of these uh, depressed communities, uh, especially now, and we had no way of knowing this, but now that is probably, uh, this is a great time to focus on some of these communities uh, with a lot of the legislation that has recently been enacted to make these very attractive investments for outside investment, probably more so than it has been in the last 30 or 40 years. So we've been working with the IFA. Uh, we've testified, I shouldn't say testified, but we've appeared on uh, Capitol Hill a couple of times, uh, lobbying for legislation to uh, try to promote uh, greater uh, opportunities for franchising, uh, particularly in minority communities and for minority investors. Um, so we've been uh, offering opinions regarding how um, uh, what what Congress can do or what government can do to try to make um, franchise ownership um, easier, uh, more profitable, provide tax incentives, uh, greater access to capital, um, and actually um, sort of uh, worked with one of our Congress persons who had in, uh, introduced legislation to create a tax credit for franchise ownership, um, particularly in, in what were then enterprise zones, but are now called opportunity zones. So um, that's kind of what we've been doing. I hope that wasn't too long, but that's uh, that's what we've been up to. Robert, that's awesome. And so, you know, to some of our listeners out there that uh, might be, you know, a first time buyer and might want to explore, you know, getting involved in, you know, what's your first piece of advice to someone who, you know, might be looking for opportunities? I always tell people, uh, regardless of what it is that they're looking at, what is, my first question is, what are you passionate about? Um, because that is really what's going to make you successful. So um, if we talk about franchises or, or business ownership, there's tons of businesses out there, good businesses out there that could be acquired. The, the reason that I focus on um, uh, business brokerage and franchising is because, you know, I've started a bunch of business, uh, businesses from scratch and it's tough. <laughs> you know, those those things often don't, don't work out the way you want them to. But if you can buy an existing business, good business with a revenue stream, there's a greater opportunity to get it financed. And, you know, there's a lot of folks who are in business that are exiting businesses because their kids don't want to be in business or they're just tired or, you know, there's a whole host of reasons. So, if you can find something that you're passionate about, which is a little bit more difficult, I think, um, when it comes to buying a, an existing um, um, going concern uh, versus a franchise. I mean, there's probably ten or 15,000 different types of franchises, whereas, again, it's a business in a box. While it may not be uh, up and running and having uh, have uh, established revenue, although there are franchise resales that do, um, but at least you know that this business model works somewhere. Um, and you can probably get um, you know SBA financing for it. 
So if there's something that you're passionate about, there's easily uh, a franchise that is uh, in that in that vein and in that area. So I would have folks to start with what it is that they're 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 passionate about, and then obviously reach out to somebody at Transworld or somebody, uh, a trusted advisor, which is what I think we at Transworld try to be, and to get advice and guidance in terms of how to navigate, you know, that uh, the industry that's and, and look for what it is that you feel is a good match and, and take it from there. So, Robert, I mean, it sounds like you're extremely passionate about this topic and, and building millionaires through franchising, which is just, I think, an amazing um amazing passion to have and really accomplish that through McDonald's. But how do you get the messaging, the message about franchising out in the communities now that you serve? That's a great question, Jessica. Um, We actually, our office um, has done something that may be a little bit different. We've actually developed an economic model um, called the social determinants of wealth. Uh, And it's really derived from uh, a public uh, health model called the social determinants of health which looks at um, the disparities that exist, particularly in minority communities, uh, which if you type in, say, a zip code on the south side of Chicago um, and then a zip code on um, uh, the Gold Coast, which is one of the more affluent, uh, probably the most affluent part of Chicago, there's about a 30-year difference in life expectancy. And what this public health model looks at are these things called determinants or things that exist in this in one community that don't exist in another community that impacts your health outcomes. Um, and all I did was take a look at that model and say, hey, the same things that make a community healthy are the same things that make a community wealthy. You know, your access to, to uh, healthy food, education, housing, um, uh, health and health and wellness opportunities, your relationship with uh, first responders. So we created a model uh, based upon uh, or an, an adapted a model that we created called the social determinants of wealth. And what we looked at, particularly in minority communities, um, the main issue um, is that there's a lack of the, the main issue that contributes to a lack of wealth in our communities is the fact that we don't own the businesses that exist in our community. So um, the black dollar in particular only circulates within the black community for six hours before it, it goes out of the community because the commu- because the businesses that are owned in there in those communities are typically not owned by the people that live there. They're owned from people owned by people who live outside the community. And while the national unemployment rate is you know at three point seven three point eight, which is full in, full employment. In African-American communities in particular, unemployment rate can be 30, 40, 60, 70 percent um, in some communities. So and that is also a direct result of, of the fact that um, the the community doesn't own those businesses or they don't employ those uh, those folks. So the dollars that are generated in the community are taking out taken out every day when those business owners go home or back to their communities. So what we do and, and direct answer to your question is we, we partner with local institutions, namely the church um, and economic development organizations um, and different not-for-profits that are in the community that try to identify entrepreneurs in the community who have the attitude and the aptitude for entrepreneurship and try to create joint venture partnerships between the church or the not-for-profit and the entrepreneur, whether um where the organization puts some skin in the game, meaning some capital, and the entrepreneur puts some capital in the in the uh, into the business, 
Uh, and then uh, we have some developed some funding relationships with the SBA, a number of other financial institutions, uh, a hedge fund uh, that's interest, interested in um, investing in minority communities and emerging franchises. And we focus on trying to uh, get those individuals into uh, socially conscious, lower cost franchises um, that help benefit the community. And the reason specifically why we focus a lot on franchising in this model is really for three reasons. One, as I said earlier, it's, it's business in a box. So even those folks that have limited backgrounds and business, if they, again, have the attitude and the aptitude for entrepreneurship, uh, the franchisor uh, will work with them um, because you're in business for yourself, but not by yourself. The franchisor has a, a vested interest in your success. The more money you make, the more money they make. Second reason is also what I alluded to earlier, access to capital. Um, a bank uh, is or a lending institution is much more inclined to uh, finance a franchise than it is if the three of us, as great as our idea may be, decided that we wanted to do something. Uh, banks really only lend money to people who don't need it. So, um, But they're a lot more uh, um, likely and willing to have a conversation around a franchise. In fact, most of our franchises that we deal with are already on SBA approved list, or if not, it's pretty easy to get them on there. And then uh, third is something that is sort of a, a particular issue for minority communities, and that's the unemployment rate that I, I alluded to earlier. A large part of that is a result of, you know, most programs focus on job creation. Well, the job doesn't, a uh, job only creates income. It doesn't create wealth. And uh, one of the reasons why job programs don't work in these communities, in my view, is that um, a good percentage of those folks who are in that 30, 40, 60, 70 percent unemployment rate that I spoke of earlier are what we call returning citizens. In other words, they've had some kind of prior uh, brush with the law. And usually that brush with the law was as a result of some entrepreneurial activity. Unfortunately, that was at the time illegal. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, they already have the spirit of entrepreneurship, and if they paid their debt to society, what I always say as a franchisor is more concerned about your future than your past. If they feel that they can make money with you, and that you're a person of of uh, of good repute at this point going forward, then they're more willing to take a chance on you. There's no no. Uh, prohibition of owning a franchise because you've uh, been formally incarcerated. So for all of those reasons, um, we think franchising makes a lot of sense to try to transform. And I, I hate the word economic development because these communities are far past being developed. They need to be transformed. So we focus on working with those brands that are interested in trying to help us transform these communities, um, use, utilizing this model. And it usually starts um with a well, I'll 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 break there because you may have some questions. But the last thing I'll say about that before, if we want to get more into how the model works, but um, we also, uh, as of recently, have been partnering with developers uh, who are coming in and doing affordable housing in these communities um, and trying to be their sort of retail partner to help uh, develop mixed use opportunities um, and be the 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 broker basically that brings in. Uh, brands to to supply these uh, retail or these mixed use developments. So that's something we just started, and it's uh, showing some some traction. And we're excited about it because we get a, a chance to try to help plan the transformation of some of these communities. 
Well, Robert, I know we've got to jump into a great interview you have with one of uh, your friends from Choice Hotels that has one of these minority investment programs. Um, and it's, it's a great interview and the listeners definitely don't want to miss this. But you have so much great information about the model that you're using in your business and how to help it transform communities that we're definitely going to have to have you back on the show and chat further. So does that sound like a plan? Oh, absolutely. I'd love to. All right. Well, let's jump into the show. And Robert, our guest host for the day, is um, going to be jumping into an interview with Choice Hotels that has a program specifically for minority investments in different communities. Transworld Business Advisors is the world's largest business brokerage and mergers and acquisitions firm with over 500 brokers in nearly 200 offices worldwide. Transworld's team handles thousands of business sales every year. To be connected with a qualified business broker or learn more about the buying and selling process, visit tworld.com forward slash the deal board or call 888-719-9098. Hello, everyone. This is Robert Johnson um, from uh, Transworld Business Advisors of Chicago, and uh, I want to welcome you to the deal board Um, at Transworld. We specialize in trying to educate Uh, our listeners around uh, the deals that are out there for both buyers and sellers. Uh, And I have the extreme pleasure today to welcome a guest um, to the audience. And is a dear friend of mine who is an expert uh, in uh, franchise development and in uh, hotel uh, development. Uh, And his name is Lester Adams from Choice Hotels. He is the vice president of emerging markets for Choice Hotels. Welcome, Lester. Thank you very much. So let's jump right into it, Lester. in this series, we want to talk about minority investment uh, and the opportunities that exist in uh, minority communities uh, and and opportunities that exist for uh, minority investors. So tell us a little bit about your role um, at Choice Hotel and 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 what you do uh, for the for the brand. Not a problem. Well, first and foremost, on behalf of Choice Hotels, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, Choice Hotels since 2003 has created uh, this emerging markets department uh, with the sole purpose of uh, growing the underrepresented minorities within the hospitality industry um, in the field of ownership. Um, what we know as a general perspective, there are about 60,000 franchise hotels we have in this country, franchise and owned hotels, and about 62% of them are owned by the Indians from India. Uh, African Americans, Hispanics, and Native Americans own less than two to three percent. So that disparity is something that Choice decided needed a a full department in that in actuality in order to change that disparity um, that we have. So they created the Emerging Markets Department back in 2003 in order to do that, focusing actually on four primary areas, African-Americans, Hispanics, Native American, and veterans. And with it, we yield two opportunities um, to give back to those people. One, um, we have a full-time person, myself, that comes in to uh, really find, educate, consult, and take someone all the way through the process uh, of licensing, uh, from application to licensing, in order to get them to become a hotel owner. Uh, And second, we also have incentive dollars that we're able to put into these deals um, that will make it a little bit easier to get through some of the financial hardships that are created around owning a hotel. Um, It is not the cheapest thing for you to buy in the franchising world, we we will admit, Um, but it also is not as bad as a lot of people think. 
Um, you can be looking at a project that is of more than $100 million. You could also be looking at a $3 million property that you're buying and converting into a choice property potentially, um, all of which uh, you're going to be doing under basic uh, commercial loan perspectives of needing 20 to 30% equity. That tends to be something that can be put together by a few people. Um, so we just want to make sure that we're getting the understanding and the knowledge about this opportunity out to as many people out there so that they can see where the opportunities lie within this industry, especially as we see the, the new world that's been created with um, a lot of the gentrification that's happening and um, a lot of other things like the opportunity zones where we can find new places that we can put hotels and other businesses and have them really be owned by the people that are in those communities. And that's what we want to help promote. So when we talk about hotel ownership, let's talk a, a little bit about the, the choice brands, because I think you're right. Most folks think about a hundred million dollar, you know, Hyatt or Hilton, but choice has a number of brands at all sort of entry levels, which you alluded to in, in your, your earlier remarks. Talk to, talk to folks about the different brands and the different sort of strata of hotel ownership. Not a problem. Well, with Choice Hotels, we are the second largest hotel company in the world. And that brings us in at a little bit more than 7,500 uh, open and under uh, construction properties that we have worldwide. And we do that with 13 brands. Um, we go from upscale down to economy. And that's really different for the, from the majority of our competitors. Um, you can start at the Econolodge or Roadway area um, in, the, in the economy brands or Suburban Lodge and potentially be in a property for you know, two, three, five, six million dollars, depending on if you're buying something that's being sold, existing, or building out of ground. Um, in the mid-scale space, we have Woodspring Suites, which is our um, economy slash mid-scale uh, extended stay uh, project that we just bought last year. And then you have Sleep In and Mainstay, both of which are mid-scale, Sleep In being limited service, mainstay being uh, extended stay. After that, we have the crown jewel of the of of our of our uh, group. That's quality. In, excuse me. That's uh, comfort in and comfort suites. Uh, comfort is definitely the biggest thing that we have um, within our tool belt in order to get great owners. Um, we also in the conversion space have quality in Clarion and Clarion Point, one of our new brands. Um, all of that is mid scale and upper mid scale. Lastly, we finish off with our two upscale brands, uh, one being Ascend, which is our boutique brand, and Cambria, which is an upscale select service brand, kind of in competition with Courtyard or Hilton Garden Inn that most people may recognize. Cambria has been around for some years now, but we're still growing it, and it's, as of right now, the fastest growing uh, hotel in the upscale segment. Okay. So you mentioned uh, in your role, uh, you're looking specifically for minority uh, hotel owners. Um, so why would a minority uh, investor be interested in choosing Choice versus some other brand? I mean, what what incentives or what, what makes Choice uh, an ideal brand to consider? Well, I think when you start to talk about the scale in which we, we live in from economy to upscale, we have the ability to bring a first-time owner in at a financial level where they can afford to get into the game. If you look at some of our competitors where their lowest brand may be upper mid scale, 
it could be a $15 million um, project that they're coming into, which for a lot of people coming up with 30% of that 15 million is a pretty nice chunk of change at $5 million, um, at approximately $5 million. Whereas uh, because we have the mid-scale and the economy brands in which you can start, uh, it can enable you to come in at a much lower price point. You can find an existing economy brand property for $3 million very easily on a lot of the hotel broker sites. So 10 people coming up with $900,000 is a lot easier than 10 people coming up with $5 million. And a hotel is not something that people do by themselves. It's not really something where we see a lot of single person owners. Uh, It is usually done by groups, people that are looking to actively invest and a lot of people that are looking to passively invest. And we think from the minority community, as we better pool our money to work work together and go into communities where we want to see growth, where we believe in those communities, it's a great opportunity to go into a business that shows the ability to grow money underground, which that land is changing in value and growing in value with an operating business on top of that ground, which if you pick the right brand is going to yield you uh, good cash flow as it goes goes through its process. I'm a franchise guy. So um, talk to us about um, choice as a franchise brand. Uh, What what kind of incentives, support do you guys provide for um, the investors into a choice hotel? Well, specifically to this um, emerging markets department, we have an incentive program that uh, is delineated by the tiers that you're in. In the economy brands, uh, it is a $750 per room uh, invest incentive that we can put in with a with a max of about $50,000. On the uh, mid-scale properties to upper mid-scale, it's $1,500 per room, maxing out at $125. And for our Cambria upscale brand, it's $1,500, maxing out at $200,000. Now, None of that is going to finance a hotel in full. It is meant to incentivize someone to come and work with choice because one, we are specifically looking to grow owners that look like you. If you meet and want meet one of those four uh, categories and, and that's really what it's there for. Um, as long as it's owned 51% or more by that particular group, whether it's African-American, Hispanic, or any of the other two, you're able to get those funds. Um, that's really the only criteria that you have to meet is that you are that and that is more than 51% owned. Um, as a franchisor, uh, we've gone out of our way to be a, a, a franchisee-friendly uh, organization. So the, the amount of touch that you get from Choice in order to help you through this process is really is what set us apart, set us apart from um, our competitors. Um, the area directors are some of the best in the in the industry, and the area director basically lives with you from the time you sign that license to the time you close your doors, and they're there to make sure that you're making money, that you're doing everything you can to have the best hotel that you possibly can. Because please understand, Choice is in a hundred percent franchised business. So we only do well when you do well. So it's our task to make sure that we're given as much assistance as possible so that you can do as best you can within the market and within the brand that you have. Excellent. That's why I love franchise uh, models, particularly for minority investors. So let's talk about sort of the, the broader landscape when it when it when we speak about sort of what's out there um, 
for minority investors. I mean, right now it's a very uh, interesting time. You you alluded to opportunity zones. Let's let's talk a little bit about opportunity zones. Is that how does that play into hotel ownership? Well, opportunity zones for hotel ownership is is great. Um, you have a lot of areas that the different states have deemed as opportunity zones within their within their uh, particular state that are ripe with um, business and uh, commercial growth opportunities, if not already being there. And that speaks well to looking at opportunities for hotels in order to go in to take on existing demand and also help to create some additional demand. Uh, Most importantly, uh, the way the profitability of a hotel works when you're looking at some of the margins uh, within hotels in comparison to other commercial investments tends to trend a little bit higher. So people that are putting that money aside into those funds are really looking to get the best return that they possibly can. And hotels tend to provide a very good um, general return um, from a tier perspective, as opposed to its other uh, other asset classes. So it, it, it's funny, I was unable to be in D.C. today. Um, I was invited to the White House because they were talking about opportunity zones at the White House today. Uh, And we've been really trying to get our stakeholders and our potential customers involved in as many conversations about the Opportunity Zones because it's such such a great place to be able to move some of the money from one property that you may have sold into another property or other cash that that you that you um, bring out of a different investment into something that's going to grow in an area that you understand or even an area that you're new to. Yeah, uh, one of the things um, that's unique, and you can talk a little bit about this, is sort of the the dual income or revenue stream from hotel ownership, the land and the business. Can you talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. When we when we're talking about a commercial business, and and we have to delineate this from other businesses uh, somewhat. Uh, buying a piece of land is buying a piece of land. And uh, within this country, there only been a handful of times where we've seen land actually devalue over a period of time. For the most part, land is usually growing in value. So when you're talking about hotel ownership, put aside the handful of properties that may be leased. Um, the majority of these properties are owned by the by the group that is buying this property you have a piece of the earth that is growing in value. That is a business in and of itself right there. If you layer on top of that an operating model, um, in this case being hospitality and a hotel, that's able to bring you you cash flow and revenue um, at the level that you could potentially do based on your market, based on the brand you choose, based on the rates you're going to be able to charge and occupancy you can get, uh, it really yields two very strong streams of potential income out of one purchase. And that's what we tend to talk about. You can you can be a real estate person and really worry about the dirt that you're buying. Or you can be a, a, a strict operating person and worry about what's going on on top of that land. Either way, both need to be accomplished and both can be accomplished in this one purchase. And so we talk about both of those opportunities to make sure people are understanding that um, you're really dealing with, you know, dual paths of income uh, when you're buying this commercial piece of land in order to build a hotel. This sounds great, but, you know, there's a lot of obstacles and hurdles, particularly for minority business owners to, to get into to, to deals. 
talk a little bit about the success that you guys have had, because some of our listeners may think, well, that sounds great, but taking down a hotel, how often does that happen? Well, uh, this past year, um, Choice Hotels, from a minority standpoint, uh, closed 19 deals um, uh, with uh, underrepresented minorities. And the most, I guess the best part of that to me, we signed four deals with African-American female-led groups. Um, that was That's an unprecedented year um, within the industry um, to have seen that happen all in one year. And we, we basically attested to the fact that we are out searching and talking and educating um, intentionally. Um, it's easy to bump into a, a, an ex-NBA or NFL player with money. It's a little bit more tasking uh, taxing to go out and find an entrepreneur that wants to go from restaurants to hotels. It's a little harder to find that doctor that has some investable capital and wants to invest in this rather than put his money um, in the bank. Um, that's what we've gone out to do. And we've continued to grow it um, based on the fact that we've simply been intentional about going out and finding those people. Um, it there are a lot of hurdles to it. Access to capital is always going to be an issue, not just for minorities, but for anybody going into a business where capital is intensive. Um, we see we we tend to see a lot of the issue is access to information. Um, I've been doing this for two years. This program has been around since 2003. We go to certain places over and over again, and yet and still each year people have no clue that you can own a hotel. They look at Marriott and think Mr. Marriott still owns all the hotels. So it's it's always a learning process and getting the information out there of what we can do and that it's not unachievable. I think those two things, the capital and the information, are probably two of the biggest hurdles that we deal with. I'm glad you mentioned the piece about uh, African-American women. Um, one of the things is we talk about minority investment and the landscape. African-American women are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs across the board you know, at a rate of three times that of other entrepreneurs. And actually the only group that there are more African-American business on African-American women business owners than African-American men business owners across the country. It's the only uh, group that has that that interesting demographic. So for you guys to, to be focused on that demographic makes a lot of sense. I know you travel a lot, like you said, trying to educate folks about this opportunity. How can folks get in contact with you? Oh, well, you can um, go to a, a few places, um, choicehotelsdevelopment.com. Um, you can get right onto our development page, see everything about our brands. And under the diversity or veterans incentive, it will bring you up to our information and you can get directly to me. Um, or I, I would love to give you my email address. I am Lester period Adams at choicehotels.com. Reach out to me anytime with any questions. I'd love to speak with um, with anyone that would be interested in hearing more about the opportunity, going through the education process, and potentially getting a deal closed. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Lester. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, that's all the time that we have uh, for today. I want to thank you all for listening to The Deal Board. And again, my name is Robert Johnson. I am a business advisor in Chicago, Transworld Business Advisors of Chicago downtown. Thank you, and we look forward to uh, having you be a part of our next uh, podcast. Thanks. Hey, Andy, you know what time I think it is? I think it's time to talk about our deal of the week. Deal of the week. 
Welcome back, everybody. And for our deal of the week this week, I have Stephen Hansen joining us from our San Diego North office. Stephen, welcome back to the show, and thanks so much for joining us. Jessica, it's great to be with you again. So you have a deal of the week. Tell us a little bit about this listing that you just recently sold. This was really a a very interesting deal. We had a a nice, small machine shop down here in San Diego County. Had about 10 employees. Uh, It's been in business for over 20 years. And the owner was uh, ready to retire and move to the next phase of his life. Great, great. And so how did how did the deal go? Were there any hiccups or anything that you had to work through along the way? You know, one of the things that uh, we had to talk with the uh, owner about was sort of dressing for success. So he had been in that business a long time, you know, and things had kind of piled up you know, over here and over here and kind of collections of, I guess you'd call it junk, right? Right. So one of the things we had a good talk about was let's let's spiff this place up and make it look good. And, you know, like staging a house for a show. He and his wife, who also worked in the business with him, uh, they understood that immediately. And they went to town, cleaned up the shop, you know, just got rid of the the stuff that accumulated that really was of no value to the business and got it looking nice. The shelves, the front office, you know, the flooring in the machine shop and dressed the business up for success, um, which really helped in the showing when someone came in the front door. You know what? And I think that's something we don't talk about enough, but staging the business just like you would stage a house is a really, really important, um, what do I say? A really, really important indication of success in a deal. I mean, you're, you're showing off your business. People are walking through it. So a super great point, Stephen. So tell us a little bit about the buyer. How did you find the buyer and, and what type of buyer bought the business? Sure. Um, on this particular deal, we had a lot of action on this. It was a very nice, uh, profitable machine shop that specialized in, in composite materials, which is really uh, big in the high-tech area for businesses uh, locally here like uh, General Atomics and Qualcomm. So they had a really unique space. And people that came in and looked at it were people that were in the sort of general machine shop area that really wanted to kind of cut metal. And so they just, um, you know, weren't, uh, they kind of faded off. But what we found was we, uh, a great strategic buyer who had a machine shop in another county, not too far from us, and was not in this composite area and didn't have the expertise and really wanted to get into that space to a to broaden their reach as a machine shop and their capabilities. So in this case, uh, we found a great strategic buyer who came in looking to grow their business and vertically integrate the shop that they already had. Right. And that's, I mean, that's a great strategy of looking for buyers and something that, you know, you do very well and Transworld does very well of looking for buyers. That would be, you know, what you call the most probable buyer and and strategic acquisitions are great, not just for the seller, but the buyer, they get, you know, a business, expand their service lines and and probably are able to cross sell different things to their customers as well. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of the things that they did is, you know, they picked up uh, the lease, which had a considerable period of time left on it. Uh, They want to keep all the employees for that expertise. So this is a great uh, example of someone, you know, vertically integrating a strategic buy and they didn't close the shop up and move it to their headquarters. Uh, They plan on keeping this location because it's close to these high tech centers that uh, they want to further establish the relationship with. So it was kind of a win-win for all parties. 
Oh, that's awesome. So let's talk numbers. So what was the business, you know, what did it, the buyer acquire the business for? What was the SDE? And also how, how was the transaction financed? Sure. It was a cash deal. So that was nice. Nice and unique. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, of course, the seller loved that. And, uh, you know, we don't always get that, uh, you know, there was uh, no seller note and uh, no SBA or loan financing, no bank financing on this deal. Uh, the shop was doing, um, you know, a little over half a million dollars a year. Uh, and it provided a great income to the owners. Uh, it has a great opportunity to grow from that. So we, we're looking at a SDE um, of approximately uh, $175,000 or so. And this business sold for just over two and a half times as a multiple. Mm-hmm. Nice. And and usually I think those strategic buyers typically pay a little bit of a higher multiple because there's some economies for scale in there, right? Absolutely. Yeah. There are some services like, you know, they will integrate uh, like bookkeeping, for example, and some of that back office, you know, of the administrative side. But uh, yeah, so there is, they're going to get some economies of scale. And when they buy, you know, materials and things like that, they'll, they'll get a better you know, economy of scale from their other shop too. Awesome. Well, Stephen, it sounds like a great deal, a great transaction for all. Thank you for sharing with the listeners and thanks for joining the show. Have a great day. Hey, Jessica, you know what time it is? Money time? Almost. It's time for listing of the week. Yes, it's listing of the week. And we have Albert Hatley from Trans World Business Advisors of Chicago downtown And, you know, there's a lot of hot kind of businesses out there. Everybody's asking me, what's a good business to buy? And so, you know, organic seems to be one of the catchphrases these days. And uh, lots of businesses are trying to be environmentally conscious and, you know, and be good stewards of the the, uh, environment. And uh, Albert has one for us today. So, Albert, welcome. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. So, why don't you tell us about the business? Sure. So uh, we have a, a listing that is uh, actually two units of a uh, natural facial day spa. And if you kind of think of fast casual, uh, that's what this would be. This is not replacing a zen-like uh, day spa that's all day, but simply for the uh, working professional or whatever one may do for a living, we're able to, to zip in and get a, a facial done uh, in under 30 minutes. 30 minutes. And uh, it's, a, it's a really unique concept. Um, it's uh, very low maintenance in terms of uh, you only require one employee uh, huh. per, per store. And uh, the other unique thing about it is you do not require uh, having it staffed eight hours a day. So it's by appointment. Wow. Really helps with the uh, overhead. That's great. That's great. So it's two locations. How much are they asking? Uh, for both units, uh, three hundred grand uh, total. Excuse me, and uh, they are rapidly growing. It is a, actually it is a, in fact a franchise, um, but they are growing rapidly with their their anchor being uh, here in Chicago. Okay, and it's making money. It is making money. Yeah, it's um, in uh, two of the more rapidly growing neighborhoods uh, in Chicago uh, that mirror the same uh, demographic in terms of population and, and uh, those with uh, 
uh, disposable income for a facial. Okay. And do you have financing available? There is financing available. Correct. Great. There is financing available. And obviously we work with uh, the financial financial sources that we have through Transworld. Great. So, Albert, how best to get in touch with you if somebody wants to talk about it? Absolutely. Uh, I can be reached via email at e h a t l e y at tworld.com. Again, that's e hatley at tworld.com. Or my direct is 773-234-1495. Okay, great. Thanks for coming on today. You bet. Thank you, Eddie. Thanks for tuning into our show today. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe through your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review. If you have questions or suggestions for the show, visit us at tworld slash the deal board or email us at the deal board at tworld.com. Hey, Nova families need childcare. Let La Petite Academy help with 13 locations nearby. We've got you covered. Your child will love our full-day summer camp. It's packed with hands-on STEM projects, exciting activities, lots of outdoor playtime, plus healthy meals and snacks, too. School-age students even get to take field trips. It's big fun for them and peace of mind for you. See it all with live streaming video in our Sproutabout app. Sign up at LaPetite.com. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.